I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The Telegraph Telegraph. Podcasts Hello, uh, welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph and Mitsubishi Motors. Well, the 2019 Rugby World Cup is now a matter of history and congratulations to South Africa who produced a completely dominant performance in the final to see off England 32 points to 12 in Tokyo last Saturday morning. England head coach Eddie Jones said after the defeat that he couldn't put his finger on what went wrong with his side but I'm sure that Kieran and I will be able to offer at least a few pointers whether or not he feels irrelevant will be another matter. I mean the result came a week after his players put in arguably their best performance under Jones against New Zealand. So, was it a case of peaking too soon? Is that an actual concept? We'll also discuss uh, how it was that South Africa saved probably their best performance for the final. The win caps an incredible 24 months in charge for their head coach, Razi Erasmus, who took them while they were down and out with very few people giving them any chance. And now they sit atop the world stage of rugby they are world champions and deservedly so it was a clean sweep uh, at the rugby awards on Sunday night following the win and we'll be speaking to the former Springbok captain and World Cup winner Bob Stinsat about what he expects the win to do not only for South African rugby but for the country as a whole Refereeing, well, that was a major talking point at this year's tournament. Jerome Garces was criticised by some, not me, after his performance at the weekend. And we'll be speaking to the former international referee, Jonathan Kaplan, about what he thought of Garces' performance and the standard of refereeing as a whole over the last seven weeks. Alongside me today to discuss all this is 2003 World Cup winner and former Saracens and England scrum half, Kieran Bracken. Hi, Kieran. How are you doing, Brian? Good to see you. Before I say anything, let me put this straight on the table. South Africa were worthy winners by a good way. They beat England in virtually every discipline on that. That said, do you think England, to what extent, if any, uh, made their job easier? Oh, absolutely. Uh, First of all, to say that um, I just felt they just seemed off kilter they just didn't seem themselves and I don't know whether that was the the bus being late but from the very off it it seemed to be a carbon copy of the way New Zealand approached England the week before they were off kilter and there was just something not quite right but England were doing very unusual things throwing the ball behind their own post missing touch which was unusual uh, or kicking straight out uh, knocking on quite a lot and it was 
it was, as you know, at international level, when you make a mistake and then you compound it with another mistake and another mistake, and then it came to the scrummaging. Now, people talk about Carson Clare and what a difference that made. I, I'm not entirely sure whether it made too much difference other than Carson Clare around the pitch is clearly a lot better player. He can be coming as, as a first receiver. He's got lovely hands. But as a scrummager, I, I just read some stories about South Africans were really looking forward to the scrum because they really felt they had an opportunity to go at Carson Clare and the England scrum. And also the fact that the South African scrummage, especially the front row, were used to playing 45 minutes each as opposed to England where they put the front line up and they'd play for 60, 70 and then bring other people on. I mean, obviously, Dan wasn't quite ready for a full match we all know that and we were taken apart in the scrum but it wasn't just the scrum we were taken apart in the air now normally when England kick we tend to get the ball back you'll remember almost every kick that went up in the air Faf de Klerk or Pollard um, it the wingers seemed to catch it and, and get the ball back and keep the ball. So we lost the aerial battle. We made a lot of mistakes. We compounded those mistakes. Uh, we looked nervous and we lost the physicality. And for me, it, it was to some extent, it looked like, and it feels like a real feeble excuse, which is why I don't think Eddie Jones is quite prepared to come out and say that. But I think the mindset wasn't quite right. I half felt that... That, and it's hard when you've had a, such a great win like that. It's hard the following week to back it up because when you beat the best team in the world, you have arguably the best performance ever. Then you're reading the papers, you're looking at your own performances, everyone's talking about everyone getting MBEs, you're talking about a, a, a bus ride, open top bus, meeting the Queen, MBEs. And somewhere along the line, I'm not saying they, they, they said, well, we've won it, it's going to be easy. But the fear factor is certainly nothing like it would have been against New Zealand as it would be against South Africa. And and therefore, I'd be interested in time to come out about, about the psychologists that came on board and, and how they managed the expectations. But when I listened to the South Africans talking before, the week before the game, they were talking about they needed to play the best they'd ever played. And with England, it was all about almost, well, we're going to get better. It wasn't about how good South Africa are. Could you, could you perhaps um, paraphrase it in this way? Um, you know, it's a different mindset to say, look... We need to do this again. If we do this again, we're a better team. We've got more attacking options. Things will come right. And all things being equal, we should win. Rather than thinking, if we don't get this absolutely right in every area, we are going to lose. And not only are we going to lose, we could lose badly. And there's a big difference in the two. There's a massive and, and, difference. And the thing is, when you, it will not be until they look back and they've had... It may take a couple of years, actually, mm. um, for them to reflect and think, actually, that I, that wasn't quite my mindset. It was a, it, I was in a different place. Not not that I was blasé um, consciously. Not that I assumed we wouldn't win. Not that I felt it was a god-given right. But I tell you what, I wasn't absolutely desperate like I was at the before the semi-final. No, I agree with you. I think it's, it, you know you have to understand. And we, look, my first game was against New Zealand way back in 1993, playing with yourself <laughs> and uh, Jamie Joseph stood on my ankle, and you know, you know, the rest is history. We won the game; it was fantastic. And I think the odds for us winning the Grand Slam just around the corner were very high, and we were the number one team, and we got we, we got beaten by Ireland first time in twenty years. So you have a mindset, and I know there were a few months apart, but this is different. It's very hard when you have a mindset when you're playing against the best team in the world. Clearly. You know, clearly the All Blacks 
almost thought they were in the final as well, didn't they, to some extent? And and their mindset wasn't quite right. And so you inquire as to why. But I just think the South Africans, you know, they had a tough semi-final against Wales. They just scraped through and they saw what England did. And they're all saying, geez, you know, we're, we're going to lose this unless we are at our best. And I remember the World Cup semi-final where we played against France, my last game for England, and we beat them convincingly, especially at scrum time. And Martin Johnson said, look, forget about that. We're, this is a different game. You know, we're playing against Australia, beating the All Blacks. These guys know how to play in their own backyard. Just put that all behind you guys, right? It's not going to be the same final. We've got to start again. And we didn't have psychologists, but... Martin Johnson, Clive Woodward said one game at a time, don't think you've won it. And I kind of feel, I think we as the press as well, If the reason I was reading the paper, it was like, it was all about the celebration of winning. It was never about, geez, we might not win. Who, you tell me who in the English press and only the papers said that South Africa are going to win. Um, I, I can't name any. I didn't say they were going to win, but I did say in my uh, review of the front rows, there are four front rows in this. Yeah. Uh, the the starters and the finishers or whatever you call them, yeah. and they're all quite good. But I've got this, this this thing: the South African scrum is more pivotal to the way they play their game yeah. than it is to England. Yeah. England will be looking and be quite happy to uh, get parity there and then be allowed to go around the field. Yeah. South Africans need and will want their scrum to be on top because that gives them all sorts of other edges. And Let's let's get into this scrummage. I'll ask you your, your point of view. Mm. The scrum is unique in this sense. It is a direct physical battle. Yeah. It's not about technique necessarily, like line outs are, and mm. you can you can't and the thing is you can't swap them round. You're gonna pack down in the same position mm. against the same person, and that's it. Mm. You can't avoid it. No. And when it goes wrong, because it's such a for want of a better word, I can't think of a better one, a macho thing. When you are being humiliated and pushed backwards, yeah. psychologically, it yeah. is devastating. You are right. It's a what's massive... It like as a ba- what's it well, like as a back? Well, well, your, your well never mind being a back. What's it like as a scrum half? There's nothing worse. When, when you're putting that ball in and you can just sense because when you're getting the ball going backwards trying to get the ball out honestly is a nightmare and something that we talked earlier is about something that England weren't able to do is do a channel one you see when you're struggling in the scrum an easier way is get the hooker to sort of unleash his bind a little bit turn to the left and hook it straight into the number eight's hands so by the time they start pushing it's the ball's gone Mm -hmm. so they weren't able to do that and that's interesting to see why that's not been done so it's I don't see it much done in the in the in the professional game anymore no because Technically, they can't do it. Why? Why not? Because they're not they're not taught to do it, and they don't and they don't feel it's necessary. It's something. Well, it you know, is. And, that, and that's when you see Japan. They can do that because they're always under pressure. Absolutely. So, but, the, but the other thing, Kieran, is yeah. you can't do that on their ball when they double shoot. Oh no, of course not. Well, of course <laughs> not. No, and a lot of the penalties were on the South African ball, and you know, we're lucky to get some of them away. But when you talk about a psychological blow, you're completely right. But it also is a psychological blow when they're in areas of the pitch. You don't mind losing a penalty in their 22, but a lot of the important penalties were given in England's half, which hadn't happened in the tournament. But from a psychological blow, I just remember, and I've seen you a lot of the time, from your point of view, Brian, when you were with England and every international I saw, the pack would 
all come together and the one thing they talk about more than anything would be the scrum and they talk about how they're going to have a double shove and how they're going to have they're going to dominate that area and how they're going to work together and push together because they knew that it's it's almost like a tally I, I, I remember seeing front rows coming in feeling chuffed even though they lost because they won all the scrums but for all those reasons Kieran yeah. and the other thing is this what it does is mm. say the other side uh, spill the ball knock the ball on in contact yeah. or whatever drop the ball forward pass it that is supposed to be you get the scrum your advantage, you get the ball back and you play on. Yeah. If you're under pressure, their mistake turns into a potential for them to get three points if it's in kicking distance. Absolutely. And that means when you're in the loose and you're handling, there's a certain sort of nervousness because you know if I if I spill the ball, if I don't do this right, mm. not only will I give the ball away, it might cost us three points as well. So every time you knock the ball or you're thinking, oh, God, that, that might be three points. Three and, points, of course, yeah. the pack is then thinking, we've got to defend this. And the the opposition are thinking... We're going to get we're going to get points here. Yeah, but out of interest, though, I mean, I know I know it was very stark in the game in, in the final. But why wasn't it so important in many of the other games necessary for South Africa? I know, yeah, I know Wales took a scrum on their line, and, and I know they did it with Channel One, didn't they? Got the ball out quite, pretty quickly, but it was never influential as much. Certainly in the South Africa game against New Zealand, partly because New Zealand don't knock it on that much. Yeah. But there were You're so right. many errors be- be- because I am absolutely certain. They targeted this area and said, this is one area where we can actually get an advantage, but not Mm. just in a small advantage. Mm. We can really make a big statement. And for all the reasons we've just been through, that will have knock-on effects, really serious, good for us, really deleterious, really bad for them. Yeah, two two questions then. I, I heard that Eras, uh, Razi Erasmus did say after the game he thought that the England front row would be very, very tired because they were used to playing their first front-line players up to 65, 70 minutes and bringing on the rest for 10 minutes, whereas he specifically made sure his players played... Because they, the, they did the replacements at 42 minutes. I thought, well, that was a bit odd. 42 minutes brought on a new front row. So what, what, what they, do you they, make I of mean, that? I they, they mean, they have got two front rows mm. that are virtually equal in terms of scrimmaging ability. I think right. the first choice probably have a bit more mobility. Mm. Marks is a, an exception probably at hooker, but they're all really good scrimmages. Yeah. And they're all really good ball carriers in a very direct way. They're all mm. committed in the tight. And, and, and of course, what, what happened was because England couldn't, and they struggled a little bit in the line-out then as well, yeah. Yeah. because they couldn't get set ball which was of any quality they couldn't impose the game plan because I always said it was imperative that England did not make the tackle the one-on-one hits where people like Detroit and Vermeulen could come in and be one-man wrecking balls either winning penalties or slowing ball down and because they couldn't get the set ball on the terms they wanted Mm. they couldn't get the loose ball carried in the way they wanted it turned then into very much like the Wales game where it was very attritional and South Africa were just far more physical around the breakdown England couldn't get over the gain line when they tried to move wide they didn't do it well there was a lot. There were lots of passes which were atypically inaccurate. Mm. Uh, kicking was inaccurate, and so on. And it just compounded. And in the end, they ended up looking as bereft of ideas as New Zealand did against them. When it wasn't a case of not having Plan B, it was a case of not even able to get on the board yeah. with Plan A, and then thinking, well, 
There was, it was, do you know what? There was timing. There was suddenly there was a knock on, then there was a penalty, and then there was a kick off, and then there was another knock on, and then there was a straight out, and then everything goes against you, and the timing's all off. But do you know what was really interesting? At 35 minutes, it was still six all, and I thought, was, how yeah. England I, I didn't still know in this game? I mean, how were they still in this game? And then they gave away two very cheap penalties to go in at 12 six at half time. But when they come out, I thought they'd make changes. You know, you, you're right. You know, what England needed is they just wanted to build phases. They wanted to build phases and get quick ball. And what it meant was, because they didn't have that foundation in the scrum at least, then they were struggling and then panicking, absolutely panicking. We hadn't seen them panic in the World Cup. But my question really to you is, to some extent, and it's been mentioned before, is, is there a soft underbelly with leadership and with this England team. We saw what happened against Scotland. We've seen where 31 up and then suddenly it's a draw and we don't know how to combat a side who's running amok. And the question is, is and we've seen before that, them, them lose massive big games. Are there enough leaders in the, this team and, and is there a soft underbelly? I'll tell you what's interesting about that. Again, in the Six Nations games against Wales and Scotland... They actually would play well, then it went against them, and then they couldn't arrest it. Yeah. The problem with this game, it didn't go well from the start. No, it didn't, no. And you've mentioned this. What was what infuriates coaches, captains, and everyone else is, when you finally do register a score, and they weren't in the game at all for 30-odd minutes, and as you say, somehow they were level, when they actually registered one, they'd either not deal with a restart properly or a penalty was given away. Yeah. And then you're thinking, God, of all the things you shouldn't have done, we, yeah. we shouldn't have done, yeah. that was the one. You know, we, we, all we needed was another five yeah. minutes of, of, of flat time yeah. to, put, to bed that score in, and the psychology changes a little bit. Yeah. But you still come back to the fact that every time there is a scrum on your ball or their ball, every time there's a knock-on, every time there's a restart, you're mm. thinking, oh, God, we are potentially going to get embarrassed again. We're potentially going to give a <laughs> you're, free kick off. I know, you love bringing it back to the scrum. <laughs> well, <on laughs> I know, you are right. On this occasion, yes. it was absolutely seminal. No, I agree. And I, and agree. I just want to stress again why it is so different to any other facet of the game, because you can't change it. Yeah, you can't have short scrums. What you about can't that? Okay, but what, well, let's scrums, just say the line out was. Uh, let, sorry, let's just say the scrum went okay and there was parity. The, the other big weapon they had, and I've seen them use it Im- immensely, is in the driving mall, mm-hmm. and that's scary when they get that right. I mean, what you know, unless you take it down early or whatever. But England dealt with that quite well, I thought. They dealt with most of them. Yeah, they. But, you're, but you saw them in some of the other matches, very hard to defend against. Yeah. But it's it's interesting, you know, that the scrum is becoming more important and it, like you say psychologically it was massive but add that to the mistakes that they made mm. and then they compounded each mistake by another one very soon after and then couldn't get momentum and then couldn't change but they still they were still within the fight even six points is nothing you know going into but, but, half time but, but they come back to this point oh, and I, I, you have to because it was so germane Normally, even had they made those mistakes, that would have meant they turned the ball over and the other side got the ball back to play with from the scrum. Yeah. It wouldn't necessarily have meant them facing um, a penalty kick stood between their own posts, which no. is unfortunately what happened. Anyway, we will go on about this quite a lot more. Hello there, Telegraph podcast listener. My name is Tom Gibbs and I'm the host of our Audio Football Club podcast. If your desire for top football chat isn't sated, then may I please recommend the Telegraph's very own podcast about that subject. 
Audio Football Club comes out every single Monday and it features some of the best and brightest football minds in the country, taking in all the biggest stories from the Premier League and around Europe. Search for Audio Football Club wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link in the description of this episode. Good things will happen to you if you do so. Why don't we speak to someone who will be very chipper? I imagine he is uh, a co-host here regularly. He's a very uh, valued contributor. Bob Skinstat, the 2007 Rugby World Cup winner with South Africa, joins us. Hello, Bob. Brian, how are you, my friend? Um, Well, not in the same mood as you are, mate, I'll tell you. (laughs) 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 We've been going on about scrums, um, and I didn't... uh, I apprehended that they might be important, not quite as important as they turned out to be. Do you think that prior to the game, South Africa had any special um, regard for this part of of the game, whether this was part of their overall plan, the inordinate pressure that they put on England? Look, I, I think it's it's a combination of two factors. One, I definitely think they over-prepared the scrum area. Um you know, and, and that's that's a number of things. Peter Steftatoy on the flank, you know, bigger, stronger, faster guy. You know, three lock-sized men in the second row, etc. That was that was huge. They definitely wanted to defend our loose head side going backwards when England were on the attack, because we've seen how effective that is. You know, when once they they, they freed up, especially with a with a Vunipola over the line, etc. And then and then the quick ball around the corner, as I think Eddie Jones called it. That was the one thing. So they were prepared for, for a, a, a big counter already. And then I genuinely believe, and, and these things happen, in, and, and, I, and I really feel sorry for him and the team because of it, but I genuinely believe the Carl Sinclair injury was the start of the turn. I think he's been exceptional this whole tournament. And, um, I mean, we saw how much loose play work he did uh, in the, the quarters and the semis. And, and I think it was a big, big, big ask for, for Dan Cole to, to, um, to stand up and be that. And then, you know, unfortunately, South Africa's his preparation that we just spoke about packed their, their front row again and just brought on, you know, 35 minutes of, of fresh legs for that second half. So they were always going to buckle under that kind of pressure. Uh, but Bob, we were talking earlier on about mindsets going into the game, and you were were here, and then you you, you got out. Uh, I don't know what access you had in and around um, the camp, but did you get any sort of? Can you give us any sort of insight into the mindset of them going in? What their uh, basic beliefs, their their thoughts were prior to to, to the game. I, I can, Brian. You know, Rassi Erasmus is very astute. Um, technically, we've, 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 we've already covered that. You and I are talking about his role at Munster and, and some of the stuff he'd done in, in sort of Super Rugby teams and Curry Cup, etc. I think his masterstroke on this one was on strategy. You know, um, it's fine to be very good at, at driving malls and, and to make sure that your scrums are in, in, in tech, but, but he played this whole World Cup out um, Perfectly, I, I think what he did was he, he built the team into one that believed in themselves, but believed they were having to take on the whole world. So, so England were representative of everything that that they needed to overcome, and and um, I, I genuinely believe, unfortunately for England, that they played, you know, let's call it their hand. If if it's a big card game, they played their hand poorly by becoming 
the team to beat. Um, you know, the week, the, the week in the week that was backed up by the media. You know, every on every um, piece of literature that the Springboks could could read or look at, they were being written off as the team who were going to lose the final. And I really believe that fueled the fire. And I know Rusty used that as his as his um, touch paper to to light that fire. So. So I think I think that was very very good from him, and 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 I, I felt it. You know, I was with the team two days before um, the 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 semi final, which was going to be tough. I was with them after the victory, and and I just saw the resolve, I saw the resilience, and I saw the fairy tale uh, playing out um, that they that they were starting to believe. So it was an incredible stroke of luck, stroke of genius, you know, stars aligning, call it whatever you want, but it, it worked in South Africa's favour. I think that. Their humility in that in that victory and and the way they thanked everybody is reminiscent um, for me of of great sort of champions that are looking back at all the opponents they've taken on, taking on board what they've contributed to the to the clash, etc., and thanking them because I think they they built this this whole story in their mind from a long way before we realised. Bobby, uh, myself and Brian were in the 95 World Cup and we watched Francois Pinar lift the World Cup with the number six on his back with uh, Nelson Mandela. Lots been made of Colisi's background and first black captain. I mean, it, from our point of view and just watching, I almost shed a tear when I saw him lifting the cup uh, thinking, wow, what, you know, what a story. You know, couldn't feed himself, get himself to school and his family tragedies. I mean, w- w- what's the reaction like back in South Africa and how big is it, you think, as a momentous occasion? Is it bigger than the, the Francois Pina 95 win? Well, I'm always loath to say that because that was, that was the first fairy tale. But I, I think he's so right. I mean, I think it is bigger because, you know, we, we, we talk about racial reintegration, racial separation in South Africa, how much politics has got a role to play in sport in South Africa, you know, all the things that have gone wrong about South Africa all the time. And now they've got a chance to, to talk about something right. And it doesn't mean that it's, that it's just black people or black women who can say that, but the, the whole of South Africa can say, well, actually, we've been trying really hard. You know, overnight success takes 20 years. You can't just build a... a a sort of an army of young black rugby players without first inspiring them like Francois did and then, you know, working with them like all the coaches and, and the senior players did over the years and then actually manifesting it into a, a, a World Cup. I mean, I, I, I just think about everything that this team had to go through and, and realise how much they, they had to, how many Everests they had to climb, you know. Um, some of the stuff has come out in the media this the last two days about Russi and, and Sia having conversations, you know, about, you know, I'm going to appoint you the captain of this team, but because I want you to take them to the World Cup and see her going jeepers, you know, all I wanted to do was be a, a rugby player. I haven't even thought that far. What do you mean? And then suddenly it dawning on it that, that this Afrikaans white coach believed that he could be the guy to lift the, the Rugby World Cup in Japan and then him buying into the journey and, the, and that whole process of making that apparent and that story work for all the other the the players in the team, so it's it's incredible. I think it's one of the most important sporting moments that that I've ever witnessed. Bob, one of the things uh, I've discussed with you previously is the question of. Um racial integration and so on, from my point of view, was this. You are missing out if you do not include as many uh, potential black rugby players as you can on a whole 
heap of athletic talent. And when you've seen them now coming through, and you're right, you can't just do it overnight because they've got to learn the game and all sorts of other things. But uh, going forward for South Africa, and this is not a griping in a conventional sense, when you see when the game was virtually won and you see them starting to cut loose and, and letting you know, their creative talents come, how much more do you think there is to come? Oh, Brian, I mean, if we, if we can open the tap properly, you know, and get the young um, black African kids, you know, who, who see these images on TV and newspapers, etc., getting access to quality fields, coaching um, environments, and that's the difficult part, you know. We've, we've seen, you know, through some work that I've done with not only Gary Kirsten um, uh, Cricket Foundation, but, but also what John Smith does to put back into to rugby, the foundational uh, structure of sport are, are sort of school and, and club and, and they just haven't been there you know but but Saru over the years have, have put time and effort into it um, a lot of the schools have, have really you know community development work etc so I just I just hope that this could be the glue that can put those together you know I think we've We've wasted a lot of money in, in South Africa on, on a million different competitions. I've seen now the, the, the teams coming and playing some rugby in Northern Hemisphere. Perhaps a bigger focus on, on that means that the kids who, who see teams don't see 20 different teams. They see one or two you know, senior teams taking part in these competitions and, and their feeder systems get them there. I, I think if we've opened the taps, then there is so much more talent to come. Um, and, and, and to be honest, I've, I've got to doff the cap to, to Rassi Erasmus, you know, Makazola Mpimpi, Sibon Korsi, these kind of players, you know, he, he went out to those schools years ago and said, let's get them through the system. I want to see the guys of, of, of color who are, who are fast and who are strong and don't know rugby yet, and I want to teach them the game. And, you know, there they are scoring tries and winning the World Cup final. Well, a frightening prospect for everyone else, but uh, no, I look like that. just hope that the... Uh the tap is, is now fully open. Uh, you must be uh, on top of the world or whatever you want to say. Bob, it's good to speak to you. Well done, mate. You too, my mate. Listen, and, and, and I think I've, I've got to remind everybody that South Africa said thank you so much to, um, uh, to, to England for not only that game, but the way that they changed the, the standard of, of world rugby in a competition like that by the demolition of the All Blacks in the semi-finals. I think those two games have, have shown us what rugby could be if it's played um, exceptionally well. So, delighted, guys, but, but reminiscent that everybody else takes part in world rugby too. Good to speak to you, mate. Thank you. You too. Bye. Uh, Eddie Jones, it looks as though... I mean, you know Eddie very well. You yeah. club coached by him as well. Um, yeah. Looks like he uh, his tenure is he's going to stay on. I, mean, I, I I wrote this. Ultimately, sport is is a very brutal uh, yardstick. You win, you lose. Uh, if you don't win, you fail. And you can't sugarcoat that. That's what he set out to do. He came very close. Uh, one of the exceptional, most exceptional performances, as you say, I've ever seen an England team play in the semi final. But failure is the ultimate uh, verdict on the campaign. What now? What now? There's a lot of talk about what he's going to do, and it was seemed a bit cruel. I think David Flatterman asked him straight away, "Are you leaving your post, or what are you going to do straight after the game?" And he said, "Mate, wait till the morning, but uh, I'm going to have us a few beers." He says. So, r- rumor has it now. I mean, he has a contract for two more years, yeah. which seems a bit strange it to strange, yeah. to have a two year contract on a four year cycle with the World Cup in France. It, it does seem strange, and now what they're saying, the RFU is saying, uh, who they're thinking now is to give it 
him another couple of years. That's what they've said now. They've come out and said they want to give him a couple more years, do the four-year cycle. Is that the right thing? It seems strange, though, to give him the two years and now after losing, ask for another two years. But for for continuity, I think it's important because he's going to. He's already said he's going to revamp the team completely. And so you're going to see a lot of people slash from that squad and he's going to start afresh again. Is he the right man to take us forward? Well, I, I mean, I think partly because there's no one else, I'd say yes. Um, I think he's made mistakes on the way. I don't think he got select- his selection quite right in the World Cup squad, personally. Um, and, you know, he just made some strange choices on the way. He stuck with players for years where we said, why is he stick- sticking with the likes of Chris Robson and Mike Brown? And then made changes and then brought people in and out. And the scrum half scenario was really bizarre. Suddenly, you know, uh, Will Hines from nowhere is suddenly on the World Cup. Doesn't take another scrum half in case. Listen, he's got a great record in the World Cup. So who's who are we to argue? argue but some of the things he's done are strange but I think for continuity he got us to work at final a year ago or two years ago even as well we'd have taken that all day long yeah, we would have taken that all day long. We were not competing at the highest level. Remember, we had five matches on the trot. We were lost. We went to South Africa and lost. We, we couldn't buy a win. So within a year, you know, we're in a World Cup final. We lost, but we lost badly and badly partly because of the players' fault, but also I think he's got to take some cop for It's an for interesting the thing, though, when you're talking about, you know, a completely revamped team because... If you look at the demographic in the team, bar one or two, yeah. and it is about you know as as, as few as as that. Yeah, all these players will be within the range of playing yeah, you're right. in World Cups. None of them will be particularly old. Mm. Some of them, a lot of the players who are twenty four, twenty five, should, yeah, all things being equal, yeah, be at the very top of their game. They'll have considerable experience. They'll have mm. considerably more experience internationally and in club games, sorting all these problems out. So the thought of it being slashed completely doesn't... I can't see he's that... Pretty, he's been pretty brutal, though, hasn't he? He's, he he's, he's pretty brutal. He's already said he's going to change this squad. Um, warts and all, he's going to go for it. He's going to revamp the squad. But you're right, when you look at a lot of the youngest... England team ever to be in the final by some way uh, you know which players I mean I think Farrell will be 32 by the time the next World Cup comes um, but just, a lot of the others will just be around the 29-30 mark yeah so it, it, you'd expect a lot of them still to be around and still competing but I still think he'll be quite he'll be quite tough and quite brutal and get rid of a few players you know there are a few players I was just out of nowhere suddenly got on the reckoning um, but but, but yeah, but he, ha, the other question is, is is he going to be damaged psychologically, Eddie Jones, personally from this? Because he said he took three or four years to get over the 2003 World Cup final. And I think they were the underdogs in that final and, and they did ever so well to, to get us into extra time. Uh, yet now we've gotten to a final, beat the All Blacks, you know, massive expectations. He thought they'd go out and, and win it and they didn't. So... Yeah, where does he is he is he capable of taking us forward for another four years? I think it's important knowing his emotional state. One of the things that he managed to get right, and he should have got right as well, because it was the first time since two thousand and three where the opportunity was there to get the right mix of players and get mm. this immutable statistic of the number of caps you need to win a World Cup six hundred plus. Yeah. What England can't afford to do as, as, a, as, a, as a union, as a nation, is get out of sync again. So you're in a position where 
you've only got 300, 400. Yeah. There is no reason why, if they do this properly, yeah. they shouldn't be like South Africa, like the All Blacks, where they continually get at least that part of it right, because that is the stat that has proved to be absolutely non-negotiable. You have to have yeah. that number of caps. You, no one else has done it. And there's a reason for that, because you can't, because that's important. So, above well, all, they I, can't I'll afford to get that I'll wrong. I'll challenge that a little bit, only in the sense that... Um, all right, I'll ask you a question. Was Ben Cole the right person to be starting that game as a replacement, or do that, you think Cole. someone like Williams should have been there in the first place? So that he went, he obviously went for uh, he went for experience, ninety odd caps. Was it the right call? Is he the best? That's scrub- a problem with taking only two tight ends. Yeah, why did he three. do that then? So, so that here's the question about Eddie Jones. He, you know, when he gets it right and wins, and everyone says he's a genius. But why we're allowed to question the players he took? Now, I, I, Danny Kerr for me has been playing better than Ben Youngs for some time. Uh, never got the opportunity. He got out on his backside because he challenged Eddie. Why wasn't he starting? Why was he only getting a Japan game without the, the first team there? And he said, "That's the end of you. We don't want you anymore. You're not in a part of it. You're not a team man." And I'm I, I like Ben Youngs for me, cracking player, but he's at the end of his career. And I thought Ben Spencer and Dad Robson were very exciting players, playing very well in the Premiership. And Ben Youngs is probably having his worst year in the Premiership. And suddenly, Will Hines from nowhere suddenly comes in. You know what? What? What's his? What's the reason for that? And when it comes to the World Cup final, I've always said the most important thing when you've got an England team like they have, you need the quickest passer, right? You need the quickest passer, and Ben Youngs isn't the quickest passer. You look at um, Aaron Smith, and you look at these other players. I mean, Will Hines was better, but you've got other players who are better, and I just found it. I just found it a bit strange. Uh, that were relying on these sort of older players to some extent. And even the Cipriani, I mean, George Ford, to some extent, they say, you know, he never wins the, the really big, big, important games. And he was swapping and changing. And anyway, look, we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll see, we'll see what happens on the, in the investigation. But we're allowed to ask, aren't we? Why don't we change uh, tack slightly? Because I'm very pleased to say we're able now to speak to Jonathan Kaplan, the former international referee. Uh, talk to him about a whole host of things. Uh, hello, Jonathan. Hi. Hi, Brian. Uh, I imagine you're in quite a chipper mood as well, but quite <laughs> rightly quite rightly so. Um, look, uh, overall, the standard of refereeing in the tournament, um, what would you say? Uh, so it started quite uh, shakily. Um, I think there were performances that weren't good enough, um, not just in respect of the uh, tackle sanction. Uh, I think they got a rocket, and as a result, the referee group pulled together, and I think they chose the best referees of the group to do quarterfinals onwards, and there was very little controversy uh, as a consequence. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one of the things that is has now, I think, uh, bedded in is there were fewer concussions in the uh, knockout stages than than the previous World Cup. So, um, do you believe that the stance which was taken, it's controversial to some, not to me at the time, um, was uh, was vindicated as a result of that about the the, the tackle height? Yeah. So, look, either the players adjusted. Or they were spo- the teams were spoken to. Uh, certainly, the accuracy of the referees appeared to be better, but they they had very few decisions to make as the tournament wore on. 
So, you know, I think the desired result was good for all concerned, for the players who I often feel for, because I don't think the defender has time to adjust in respect of the collision, um, and for the game of rugby in general, where, you know, it's not good to see this many yellow and red cards, particularly in the high-profile confines of the Rugby World Cup. What I've said all along is players are very savvy, players are professional and they're very skilled and, and they can adjust to anything they want to, actually, it's whether they actually want to or, more importantly, whether uh, from on above, like you're talking about coaches and managers, make it absolutely plain that this is what they require and then they go away and do it for whatever reason. I think, uh, good, I think the TMO helped as well. I think there was, there was, there was I, I recall one moment when Nigel Owen, he said play on when, it, when there was a high tackle on, I think it was... Um, uh, yeah, that's right, and I, and I just like the way the the TMO was referred to quite a few times. We're getting so much on VAR and football at the moment, and everyone said they should get rid of it. But actually, I thought they worked really well. The the, the, the TMO together with the referees, especially in the final and some of the other games as well. Yes, I would agree with that. I, I think it's a much maligned um, profession, and I think the process has been uh, criticised ad nauseum. But I will say, and I agree with you, I think the uh, the net result of better communication of um, TMO input was more accurate and better for the game. It almost appeared like there was uh, they were doing it on the hoof and not slowing the game down, <clears throat> not slowing the game down all the time. And the net result was very good for the game because the one component of what we have, which is good, is that it's a dynamic game and it keeps moving. And you don't want to take too much of that away. Otherwise, it becomes like NFL, like the gridiron, and it takes four hours to complete a game. That's not good for anybody. So I think it's here to stay. It's a good good, uh, thing that we use technology. And I think this World Cup, in particular, the last, like, you know, from... You know, from perhaps the last few pool games and well into the tournament right through to the final, where I thought Ben Skeen did very well with a, a few inputs to Jerome. Um, you know, for example, Anthony Watson drops the ball on, uh, sorry, knocks the ball on close yes. to the Springbok line. He didn't see it. And obviously the input has come from some, somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And that's good for the game. You know, he carried on playing because he didn't see it. England... Uh, played on, but when he got the correct information, he awarded correctly a scrum to the other team. So yes, he was, yeah. Uh, yeah. Can I just ask you about Dummy I mean, Jerome Goss? There's a lot of England fans. I'm not one of them, by the way. No, mate. Um, were complaining about. It. Uh, if you were being picky, the only thing I thought you could have said was early on. I thought he gave England a little bit of a, a shorter time to either get off the ball or be on the ball before Courtney the laws, yeah, you know, Courtney the, laws yeah, and, and etc. etc. Yeah. But that, to me, that had no that had no influence uh, in, in the long term um, uh, result of the game because South Africa was just dominant in so many areas. Um, can I just ask you, you, you this? I have my own ideas, but you know, for those who are not aware, um, in the England scrum was, was penalised. I thought he got one of them wrong only. Mm. Um, but then we're all outside the scrum and we don't know. And only the props know and they're liars and they won't, to, <laughs> they won't, they won't tell you, you the truth. But why, why from you know, outside, if you don't know what the scrum is about, why was he penalised in England uh, free, so frequently? Yeah, so... Um, I agree with you. I, I actually said in the Telegraph that I think one of them was 
uh, was too tough and it should have been a reset. I don't think mm-hmm. it's, it was a. Uh, it's certainly something that I would have done if I, you know, in slow motion. Um, and there were six penalties, I think, to South Africa. One was played on from an advantage, so they actually mm-hmm. got five. I think one of them I would have uh, differed in in terms of uh, sanction. And England got one, and the decision was correct because uh, Kitsov lost his footing, and uh, England, you know, drove forward about ten meters. Um, so, so I think what what happens with the mo- most referees is they look: are the um, are the players complying with the calls that the referee is making because the setup often determines the result of what's going to happen and I think uh, and I think they did and then after that they look for dominance so in, uh, sorry should I say legal dominance mm-hmm. and I think in in respect of this particular game and it surprised me as much as anybody else because you know I was one of the people that thought England would win comfortably on the back of those previous successes Um you know, he rewarded the dominance, and the dominance is the the team going forward. Mm-hmm. If they're doing something illegal, uh, like let's say a tight head, um, you know, cranking the arm of a loose head, or a loose head boring in on the angle, and those type of things would be looked at by the referee. But in respect of the decisions that he made, the first one he didn't actually make. It's very clear that the scrum drops on the far side, so he's got information from an assistant referee. The second one was the one where I thought perhaps there was a reset because. Um, a lot of the players were actually up at the same yes, time, yes. and and then uh, three, four, and five to me appeared pretty obvious. The only one where people may say, "Well, you know, England looked like they were they had dominance," was a, a scrum which went round the corner on Joe Marler's side. It's not Joe Marler, as you well know, Brian. It's the back five sometimes dictates uh, the direction of where the scrum goes, and in that particular case, I think that was that was the story. So. Um, just to come back to your point about uh, the breakdown, there was another incident where I thought um, Etoji was over the ball and he should have got a penalty in his favour, as opposed to you know letting South Africa get the put in at scrum because he was there first on his feet, dominant tackle, etc. Uh, this, this happens from time to time with referees. It is the one area where you're not going to get 100 percent, and you're hoping to make you're hoping to get as close to 100 percent as possible. But it's very difficult to determine with accuracy, with with clear accuracy in in hindsight, whether the ruck has been formed prior to um, the the defender getting his hands on the ball. Yeah. And you want to, as a referee, encourage a fair contest. You don't want the attack to just have the ball sealing off and have the ball till they make a mistake. The the defense is a component of rugby, which mm-hmm. which should be correctly rewarded. So I don't like you say. I think South Africa on the day were were surprisingly, but they, they were better and the the score may have blown out a bit at the end but they were deserving winners and I don't think the referee um, you know helped their cause in any way no, I absolutely, Jonathan. Thank you very much for that. And I want to just stress again, uh, whatever minor niggles um, you might have, and uh, everyone can have them because it's a subjective game, and that's the way that the laws are framed, purposely. Otherwise, it wouldn't ever flow. And the fact is that South Africa were better in nearly every aspect, and it would have made no difference, frankly, if some of those penalties had not been given or been given different ways. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me on your show. Cheers. Kieran, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this up uh, very shortly. Just want to say, actually, before we do, uh, congratulations to the England and Saracens centre, Emily Scarrett, who was one of the few uh, players who booked the South African green uh, swathe uh, at the uh, Rugby World Player Awards. She was 
named Women's World Player of the Year on Sunday night. Well done, Emily. Well, let's get you on as a... as a Some good news for a Saracen, for an England Saracen. <laughs> can, I, can I just say, I yeah. was at the weekend, I was at the Saracens against... Uh, Saracens were playing London Irish, and they had the World Cup booked, the replica World Cup from the RFU, oh. and I was there to sort of have pictures with the World Cup and talk about... 2003 and their new generation their new World Cup winner so you can imagine no one had a picture with me with the World Cup so that was, that was tough but at least yeah. it was a good day for Emily Scarrett you know what I, I, over the weekend I was uh, thinking back and uh, something like I was fairly I was depressed but I, I just I was never completely confident that England would win but I did think that if they played their best game South Africa played their best game they had more options mm. in the end Small things make the difference. And when you start the way England started, mm. not just with the fact they were late, but that they were inaccurate and so on, then one of your main players goes off. Then you find yourself physically being dominated against a side which are absolutely relentless mm. and were and thoroughly deserved in the end to win. There's not a lot you can do. Uh, I don't know what the players feel like. All I would say... Is that yes? It will. You, you may never get over this in the, in, in the no. sense that you won't get that eighty minutes back. But from my point of view, the important thing is now that the core of the squad that is talented that, that, that will make the next World Cup is to make sure that they get into a situation where they are viable challengers again. No, absolutely. That's that's the thing now. Now the the, the, the players and the core have to be, remain strong. They're going to get some flat. They're going to come back to the UK. There's going to be no ticket paraders, no meeting the Queen, and it's back to the drawing board for them. But there's a lot in there that they can take in the cold light of day that was very good. They played the World Cup extremely well right up until the final. And, you know, in that final, they were schooled in every department. Uh, could they have done it differently? I think what what I was disappointed Brian about was was not so fact, the fact that we we lost. It was just the way we lost. Ooh, I and I think that. when they're on the plane and they're going back, they, they they can't take anything out of that game that was positive. It's just impossible to. Now I don't know how you felt in '91 and how 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 you felt losing in that final. It was it was it was a much closer final, and this was just something completely different. They didn't give their all. They they were unusual, and that's why Eddie Jones says, "I don't know why we played so badly." Um, so. You know, it's one of those where I do hope they recover quickly and I hope the public get behind them. It's just that the, the I suppose, the furore around winning in the semi-final and playing so well, the expectations were so high. Well, I'll tell you what, it, 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 um, I spoke to Zinzan Brook mm. a few weeks before the tournament started and Australia had just beaten the All Blacks and yeah. then the All Blacks they got the revenge. Yeah. But he said to me, you know what, he said, I looked at that game, he said the All Blacks weren't particularly bad, they were just about 5% under. Yeah. And Australia were absolutely on the money. Mm. And he said that turned out to be a score difference of nearly 30 points. And he said, that is now what you're into. Games which might hitherto have been close. If you get it slightly wrong and they get it absolutely right, that can be the winning margin. And this is the case here. England were just slightly under. They couldn't get into what they were doing. And South Africa were absolutely spot on in yeah. everything they did. They were determined. They knew what they wanted. They knew how to get it. And they went about and got it. And the result was yeah. a drubbing. 
And, and, and they played that game without actually playing that well in all respects, apart from the last 15 minutes where they scored two tries. Two tries. Take that away. Which is why it's frightening, because they've got that aspect to come if they Oh, absolutely, to. absolutely. I mean, here's, here's, here's another way of looking at it, you know, and, and this might be a bit controversial. If England played South Africa for the next nine weeks, so after 10 weeks, how many would England win and how many would South Africa win? I reckon England would win six. Six four, I was going to say. Six four. All right, if England played the All Blacks in 10 weeks on the trot, how many would England win? Three. Three or four? So on the day, it makes a big difference. And that's the thing, like you say, about the 5% or 10% or whatever it is, it does make a difference. On the day, anything can happen. And everything just seemed to go the way of the South Africans in the final. Well, that's all we've got time for this week on Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph and Mitsubishi Motors. Thank you to my co-host, Kieran Bracken, to all our guests throughout the tournament. Thanks to everyone who's tuned in, who's subscribed over the last seven weeks, whether you're a regular or you've just found us. Make sure that you do subscribe because we'll be back throughout the season. Our focus obviously turns to domestic stuff, Gallagher Premiership, Tyrell's 15s, Champions Cup, Pro 14s, everything is there. And of course, the Six Nations is just round the corner and we'll see how the uh, unions bounce back from their World Cup campaigns too just remains for me to say well done South Africa the Springboks thoroughly deserved winners deserve everything and all the plaudits you get goodbye (laughs) 